0: Um, let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for uh, the promise of hope that we have in you, a hope that is eternal. God, uh, I just pray that uh, you would help us as a church to experience what we sang about this morning, that we could indeed enjoy the pleasures that are at your right hand, and that you have been promising to your people for thousands of years. Uh, God, help me to communicate clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I had a conversation with a neighbor a couple of years ago, and and uh, I had challenged him to read the book of Ecclesiastes. He was asking me some questions, and I said, you know, why don't you read this book? He was he had questions about the purpose and meaning of life, and and uh, we sat down a few times over the book, and, and he made a statement. He says, you know, why why should something that was written uh, thousands of years ago in a world completely different of ours make any sense? Why should I listen to it now? And so I think one of the things that we've seen as we've gone through the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, well, as we've gone through the Pentateuch, and now we're in the book of Deuteronomy, is that we've, we've seen that even though the books uh, were written thousands of years ago, um, we still see a lot of relevance and connection to us as, as people, as human beings, because that those things have stayed the same. The challenges that we face as human beings, the, the needs and desires that we want uh, are the same. And so we come to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, 40 years, they've been wandering around in the desert, and they are now on the border of the promised land. God has promised that I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, your enemies will, you know, 10 of you will chase a thousand of your enemies. Um, prosperity, blessing, abundance, protection. And so this is, this is the big hope they've been waiting for. They watched their parents' generation die because of their unfaithfulness, Moses is not going in uh, because he didn't believe and he disobeyed God uh, in front of the entire congregation, and so he's not even going into the land. Aaron's not going into the land. But in, in preparation for these people going into the land, he preaches these sermons, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. It's just a series of sermons that he preached there on the border of the promised land. We saw that he reviews their past, and he encourages them and exhorts them to repent of the past generation's um, unbelief and disobedience, and, and reminds them that they are going to need the same type of deliverance that Israel experienced when God freed them from Egypt. Uh, for the present time, he, he encourages them and exhorts them to hold on to the teachings that God has given them, and to protect them, to not add, to not subtract, and then to pass those same teachings Onto their children, lest they forget. And we saw that one of the biggest weaknesses that we have as human beings is our tendency to forget. And our forgetfulness leads us to forget about God and what He's called us to and the promises that He has. And this last sermon here this morning on this past, present, and future, we're going to look at the future because He gives them a vision for what the future holds. And as we have seen in many ways, you know, we really are the nation of Israel, we are like Israel. As a nation as a whole, or as a country, but also as as God's people, we are like Israel. Like Israel, you know, our, our nation just wants to keep throwing off the shackles of any sort of authority or any sort of oppression or any sort of controlling power. We are throwing off religious authority, we are throwing off monarchical authorities, we are throwing off academic and meritocratic authorities. We don't want anything defining. Uh, and putting authority structures into our life. There is, no, um, there is no ordering of the world that we all need to comply to. And so our reactions to these things have been going on uh, for hundreds of years. And we select leaders to, quote, expand our freedoms and rights. One of the prominent politicians here in the Twin Cities representing our state says, I, my goal is just to continue to expand our freedoms and our rights. We also see that not all of the, you know, if we think of ourselves as Israel, the people of God, as the people of Israel, um, we can we also see that not all of the people of God are really the people of God. You know, Paul says that in the book of Romans. Not all of not all of Israel is the true Israel. Not all of not all of those who claim to be the people of God are really sincerely the people of God. You know, over half of the nation. Claims to have a Christian tradition, but we know that that's not true. We've seen over the last uh, 100, 150 years, um, Protestant mainline traditions go and and seek the power of of science and human reason and the left version of politics and social issues. And we've seen similarly on the right, conservative Christianity fundamentalists, evangelicals have sought the the power that um, the right political efforts and social causes uh, aspire to. Uh, We've seen them move towards celebrity leadership. Not all of Israel is the true Israel. Not all of the church is the true church. This is a, a, a theme that you see throughout both Old and New Testaments. There is a believing remnant, in Israel, there's a believing remnant. In the church, there is a believing remnant. The remnant is a portion of those who claim to be Christ, or who claim to be Christians are, are truly Christians, just as ancient Israel was also. We also stand on the threshold of tomorrow. Again, just like Israel, God promises that those who follow Him will experience prosperity and happiness. Jesus Christ himself said, I am offering abundant life. That's what eternal life is. It's not just something that's way far off. Eternal life is the, is the qualitative experience of life now. There's a reason why the Gospel of John has Jesus' first miracle as transforming water into wine at a wedding feast. And then the last comment they make is that Jesus, you have saved... Well, they, the, they don't go to Jesus. They go to the, the host of the wedding... And they say, you know, most wedding hosts um, save, you know, we'll we'll drink the good wine first, and then after everybody everybody gets a little inebriated, they'll serve bad wine at the end. You have served the best. It was the wine that Jesus made. And what Jesus is saying is that what, what I provide, the life that I offer, is the best. That is the promise that God holds out. That's the promise he has always held out. It's the promise he held out to man and woman in the garden. But, not only did Israel have this hope before them of a promised land filled with milk and honey, protection and all these things, they saw these massive fortresses. They saw people that appeared to them to be giants. And so they they saw not only hope, but this is going to be a struggle. This is going to be a struggle to take hold of what God has promised for us. The first generation couldn't get past the the massive fortresses and the people that appeared to be as giants. And that's when they disbelieved and they wanted to go back to Egypt. The second generation is here at the border, the same promise and the same potential struggle. We look to a future that is increasingly hostile, as we know, to Christian faith. And the question that is before us is, are we going to resort to the powers that the world offers? Or are we going to believe that there is a power of God available to us? Are we going to want leaders that take us back to the proverbial Egypt where we were enslaved, okay, but going along with the crowds? Or are we going to hold true to God, his promises, and, and his commandments? The God who says, as Lawrence Said this morning, the God who is near. And that is one of the themes that has really emerged. It's not something you see often. But when it speaks of God, when the Pentateuch speaks of God, it speaks of a God who is near. So there is, there is hope, but, but we know there's going to be struggle. Can we grasp the hope? Rodrera is a um, strong uh, Catholic Christian Um, has written a lot of books and articles on the challenges that Western culture poses to true Christian faith. Um, He writes this, he says, the church today does not lack for diagnosticians who can tell you what's wrong with the world. What it needs is joy-filled believers who see the crisis for what it is, but who also see what we caught up, but excuse me, but who also see what we, who are cut up in the crisis, can become if we try. So as Moses looked into the future, he had the same vision. Here is what the people of God could become. And in this passage that that we read this morning, there are two benefits that the people of God have as they live in this world that is opposed to them. The first one is that the people of God have a way of life that produces life. The trajectory of life without God, and we see this at the very beginning in the garden, the trajectory of life without God is death. Death, we saw, was guilt, shame, fear, envy, isolation, vulnerability, anger, violence, hatred, death. That was the trajectory we see in Genesis 1 through 11. That is the outcome of a people who have said that they don't need God, they can do life on their own. Well, the benefit that the people of God have is a way of life that actually produces life and avoids what death brings. Moses says this, keep them and do them. The teachings and commandments hold to the promises, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. A wise and understanding people. It will appear, Israel, holding fast to these teachings, will appear to the nations of the world to be a wise and understanding people. So wisdom... Is not one of those words. If you you know, Google's got this tool. You can see how how uh, usage of words have changed over the last few centuries. They you know they do a search of all of the books that they have in digital form. Wisdom is on the decline in terms of a word that is used. Wisdom literally means skillful in living. that's what it means. Skillful in living, and it's not. Just skill in one or two areas. We have a tendency in our, in our world to highlight one or two particular skills that somebody has, and we put them on a pedestal for it. What God is looking for is wisdom, and what God produces in people is wisdom. And wisdom is an ability to live all of life skillfully. And so there are, there are four wisdom books in the Old Testament, Proverbs, Proverbs, is, is just general living of all areas of life. Money, speech, um, family, work, how to treat the poor, loan. I mean, you name it, it's in the Proverbs. We've done a few series on Proverbs over the years. All around wisdom in life. Then there's the book of Song of Solomon, which is wisdom for, for romance and marriage and uh, sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. Then there is Ecclesiastes, which is the wisdom needed to understand and develop a worldview. What am I here for? Why do I have this sense in my heart that things are eternal and that there is a God to know, but I can't quite figure it out? That's what Ecclesiastes is about. Then Job, classic Job. Job is about developing wisdom on living in a world in which you will suffer. So that, Wisdom covers these broad areas of life. And what God is saying, what Moses is proclaiming here, is that God's teachings will produce a wisdom where you are living all of your life skillfully. And the word understanding means that you're able to perceive, you have insight. So you can look into the challenges of life, understand the challenges of life, and in wisdom, uh, apply a course of action that is going to overcome the challenges that face you. So that's, that is the vision that God has for his people. That's the first benefit. The teachings and commandments of God produce a life of wisdom and understanding that is attractive to the outside world. What would be seen? What would be seen in a people who held on to this wisdom? The poor would be taken care of. So if you just think through the laws that are in the Pentateuch, we've covered some of them and the commandments and the promises, what would we see in the nation of Israel? The poor would be taken care of. No one would be enslaved to debt. Sex with anyone is not the prerogative of abusive and overwhelming and powerful men. There is a just punishment for crimes without the condemnation of a life, of an entire life. Spouses and children would be protected from adultery, Parents are honored and protected when they pass the life stage of being productive. They're not just put out. They would see a nation that works hard and it is productive, but that they have a day off a week, and every year they get at least minimum three weeks of vacation. Children would be protected from violence and abuse, and rulers and kings would use their power for righteousness and justice and not to make themselves and their friends wealthy. Those are just a few things that we would see in the laws. The Apostle Paul has the same reasoning as an instructions to the churches that are on Crete. We've all, we've all heard uh, you know the word Cretan used as a derogatory, or maybe not, I, it might be an older thing to call somebody a Cretan, like it is to call somebody a Philistine. You know, people anymore, Cretan, Philistine, what are you talking about? Well, Cretans were known for their unfair business practices, their lack of justice in the courts, their manipulation, their abusiveness, their laziness, their callousness, and their greedy for pleasure, regardless of what it costs other people. And Paul says to to Titus, who is working amongst the churches in Crete, he says, teach what is in accord to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine means doctrine that produces healthy and beautiful lives. He says, if you teach what is accord to sound doctrine, their lives are going to do three things. They're going, to, they're going to honor God with their lives. It's going to be pleasing to him. The enemies are going to be shamed. The people that are opposed to the people of God are going to be shamed because they don't have anything bad to say about them. Their lives are beautiful and attractive and productive, not only for the people in their families and in their churches, but to the world around them. And it says, his third reason for living this way, it will make the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ attractive, beautiful. Paul and Moses are working with the same theological assumption that you see in the Old and New Testaments. God's promises and laws bring prosperity and happiness to those who follow them and are attractive to the outside world. The second benefit the second benefit is the key one now they're both important but this one is the this one has to be at the foundation they have the power and the motivation to follow god's commands because god is near he says for what great nation is there that has a god so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. We've seen, you know, we spent a, we, a few weeks ago, we had a sermon that looked at the need for faith. There is faith needed to obey the commands. The commands are challenging. The pressures and deceptions of the world are hard for us to resist. We all know this. That's what sin is, is when we, we, we choose these things that we think are going to be better over God's commands and laws. Sin can also be considered as disordered loves. I love these things so much I don't want to give them up. I love them because I believe that they're going to bring me happiness. And I don't believe that God and his ways are going to bring me happiness. So faith is needed. Do, can, can we believe? Can we believe? If we can believe that God the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. If, if we could believe that he was near, and if we could believe that he truly has prosperity and happiness, and what Peter says as, is inexpressible joy. I mean, that, that phrase alone, that God desires for us to have an inexpressible joy. There aren't very many things in this world that you can say are provide inexpressible joy. There's just not very many. And we, my family and I, we went, to the, uh, we went to the Killers concert on Tuesday night at the Excel Center. And we love the Killers. Our kids have grown up on the Killers. And you know, it's a big party. But you leave and you're like, oh, that was nice. Nowhere near inexpressible joy. Nowhere near. But you know, everybody is singing and yelling and lights and flashing and smoke and graffiti. Like it's just a show. It's just a show. And it's fake. What God is calling us to is inexpressible joy. Israel, first generation, failed to believe. And Deuteronomy predicts, he says, you're going to fail you're going to be led into exile. You're going to be enslaved again. They didn't believe and they didn't obey, and the story unfolds throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and it led to death and it led to their enslavement as people. God is still working to accomplish the same purposes in us and in the world through us book of Ephesians says this, Paul describing himself. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, the promises and the plan of God to Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan for the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church not Israel through the church those who have believed in Jesus Christ the manifold wisdom of God might be now excuse me might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places god is still wanting his people to reflect a wisdom so that the world sees That the world sees and says, there is a, I I am attracted to this. He says, This is in accordance to, get this, the eternal purpose. This has been God's eternal purpose to produce a people whose lives are wise and understanding and beautiful and attractive to the world. That he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christ Israel didn't have Christ. We do. We do, and we have the same calling. We have the same calling. There is a, um, there is a, a man named Roland Allen. He was a missionary from England to, to, to China for a number of years and grew frustrated with all of the things that the missionaries and churches would do Basically, they were taking colonialism and implanting it into their efforts to 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 share the gospel and to start churches in these foreign countries. He said, "Listen, you, you guys are just you guys are just um, exporting uh, Western government structures. <laughs> you're not you're not exporting Christ and His plan for the church." And he says this. He says the the way of Christ will produce a spontaneous expansion of the church because people will look into the lives of the people and they will see an attractiveness. They will see a wisdom in their ordered lives and they will be drawn to it and they will be asking, what is it that I can do to have that life? And he says that leads to spontaneous expansion of the church. But it takes more than a good model and a structure you know we've the reason why we chose at the beginning in the vision of, of twin cities church to have house churches is that we knew that in order to develop the type of of attractive lives and depth of relationship and unified loving people that that the scriptures call on it was going to take a, an intentional structure to create those familial type of relationships where, where there's a strong commitment, there's shared lives, there's honesty, there's humility, there's transparency, there's deep learning and interaction, there's prayer together for God's promises to take hold in our own lives. So that's why we've, we put the structure of house churches into place. You don't have to do house churches, but you have to, as a church, have some model or structure that facilitates these kinds of familial relationships. There's a reason why we're called brothers and sisters in Christ under the Father and that we are co-heirs with the Son. But it takes more than just a good model or a good structure. It takes a, a deep sense and you't just, you just can't have the teachings. It, it takes a deep sense of God's nearness. And it's a nearness, the the nearness that we have available is a nearness that is greater than what Israel had. It's a nearness that is provided by Jesus Christ. just like Paul said, it's been fulfilled, the eternal purposes of God have been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has provided a nearness that Israel didn't have. A Holy Spirit that comes and then upon faith enters into us, seals us, It's a deposit until the final consummation of all things when Jesus returns. And it makes us one with God. He's not living in a tent like he was in Israel. He is living in us. And it makes us one with God, it makes us one with Christ, and it makes us one with each other. But we can also fail to draw upon this power. Israel failed to draw upon the power of the nearness of God that was available to them. It wasn't as great as what we have, but it was available. But even though God lives in us through his spirit, we can fail to draw upon that power. Richard Lovelace, writing 40 years ago, described Christians this way. Christians are saturated with a kind of dead goodness. An ethical respectability which has its motivational roots in the flesh rather than in the illuminating and enlivening control of the Holy Spirit. Well, here's what we're facing. Uh, Ethical respectability is like leading an everyday normal life that is respectable. It's not going to work because our ethics are despised. There's no affirmation of our ethics anymore. Only the power of God that can produce this, again, this inexpressible joy will lead to the life that we're looking for. A life of prosperity, a life of happiness, a life of wisdom, a life of understanding. We need the power of God to do this. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones, and this is a in a series of sermons that he preached in the late 50s on the 100th anniversary of, of a revival that they had in England. He says this, in order to experience this power, you must become aware of your need, of your impotence, of your helplessness. You must realize that you are confronted by something that is too deep for your methods to get rid of or to deal with. And you need something that can go down beneath the evil power and shatter it. And there is only one thing that can do that, and that is the power of God. We need the power of God. You know, the prayers we see throughout the New Testament is that one of those prayers, repeated prayers, is that we would recognize the power of God that is available to us through the Holy Spirit that lives in us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So when we encounter the, t- the struggles and trials of life and we, when we struggle to take hold of the promises that God has to believe that following him is truly life, that's when we need to really hold, hold firm and to know and to understand and to be deepened in this power. G- God's people have always faced enormous odds. Ancient Israel did. The New Testament believers did. The Bible was not written for a people who are comfortable in a world that affirms them. The Bible was written to a people who have to rely upon the power of God to resist the world that is enslaving. Internal transformation is needed in us. The redemptive work in Christ, this is Joan speaking, and the redemptive work in Christ did not consist in a magnified regent issuing a clear set of laws to follow. Redemption is participatory, not imitative. We have laws and commandments. Israel had laws and commandments. It's not going to cut it. Redemptive work is grounded on grace appropriated through faith, not merely on obedience. Spiritual life flows out of union with Christ, not merely imitating him. If you look in the Gospels, what did Jesus was, what did Jesus say was needed for abiding in him, participating in him, experiencing him. Really, it was two things. You need to pray. <laughs> Prayer is this recognition, it's a a practice that recognizes that God is near. Uh, The classic passage on dealing with anxiety in Philippians 4. The first thing he says, God is near. God is near. If you don't believe that God is near, and implied in God is near is that he is there, he knows you, he understands what you're going through, and he is ready to respond and answer your prayers. That's what that means. So Jesus said, listen, pray and ask God. He said, if you abide in my word and ask the Father anything in my name, he will grant it. John chapter 15, look it up. It's I have it in my prayer log. I have to memorize it and see it every day so that I am reminded God is near and he answers the prayers of his saints. And the idea is in that in abiding in his word, so that's the other thing pray and abide in the word. And if you're abiding in the word, you are renewing your mind in the practices, excuse me, in the, in the plans of God, in the promises of God, in the laws of God. You increasingly are understanding them and seeing their life. And you know what? You begin praying for them. If God's promise is to prosper us and bring us happiness an abundant life and inexpressible joy, pray for that. Pray for the things that lead to that. Pray for your marriages and for your kids and for your workplace and for your neighbors. God wants these things to flourish. So we seek the power of God because we know that the power of death is enslaving the world. And outside of the power of God manifesting itself through our prayers in obedience to the commandments of God, we're not going to experience it. If you've been in your house church over the last couple of months at least, um, you know that we have been in varying degrees of discussion about our house church meetings, about our corporate meetings, and the reason why we we started this discussion as we have shared is that we, we feel like our house church meetings have become less capable of focusing on these things. Corporate prayer together and 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 truly in, in depth abiding in His Word, and so our efforts, while it may seem like you know what we're, we're what we're wanting to do is just give us a little bit more time to really put these things into practice in a serious way as a community. That's what our desire is. We've grown in our relationships. Some of the feedback that we got in our house church, as we've been down in this discussion, is that you know we've really grown in our relationships and. That is what is needed. Trust has grown, friendships have grown. I don't, we're not regretting any of our past. God has been so good to us as a church in so many ways. But to move forward, to more fully experience an expressible joy, to more fully build attractive lives that engage the world and that are attractive to the world, and to more effectively enter into the conversations that we have Our conversations in the last few months have really grown with our friends that don't know Jesus, and they've all started because they sense a need, they see an attractiveness, and they're asking us about our faith. It's a long-term vision. It's a long-term, we're not going to see the kinds of, of mass people coming to know Jesus Christ like we have seen in the past. We pray for that, that'd be awesome. But culturally, we are in a place where it's, it's fall and winter, if you remember our, from our series on mission. But we do not despair. God's power is still available to us. And what all we're wanting to do in going down this direction, Lawrence is going to provide kind of an update to the entire church today uh, on some specifics as to where we're at and what things need to continue to be prayed for. It really is going to take a lot of prayer going forward. But our desire is to more fully experience the power of God as a community and to grow deeper in our understanding of his promises and of his commandments so that we can really reflect a beautiful, wise, understanding lifestyles in this world. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for all of the ways that uh, you provide for us. food, clothing, shelter, just the beginning. And Father, the potential of of an experience of inexpressible joy through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that all of those who have come to know Christ, I know, have experienced at some point if they're not experiencing it right now. We know that you provide something more deep and more rich than anything that the world can provide. And our desire, God, is to move forward in that promise as a community, and we ask for your help to do it.